In diversity, you have to ask yourself, where is the, the movement happening? Is it non-existent? Are you just going to sit there and sink? Or are you actually going to stay afloat by putting in the work and, and, and being a part of the change? If you are not feeling some discomfort, you are not doing it right. And discomfort by nature is hard. We don't like to sit with awareness of our own privilege or our own backgrounds or how we have our own affinity biases. We're all biased and recognizing that is hard. That's Christy Hunter R. Scott and Q. Harrison Terry. My work is really focused on building dynamic and inclusive, vibrant organizations where women and underrepresented employees can rise and thrive, and also helping individuals build bold and brilliant careers. And I do that through a mix of research and writing and publication, speaking engagements and lectures, strategic advisory work and coaching. So thanks for having me. Q. Harrison, Terry, you and I have known each other for a while now, and I'm delighted to welcome you to CXO Talk. So tell us about your work, Q. Harrison. By day, I work with Mark Cuban. I am the head of growth marketing at Mark Cuban Companies. So I help Mark execute all the crazy growth ideas that he has for his portfolio companies and, and onward. By night, I like to think of myself as a future thinker. I'm constantly obsessing over emerging technologies and the impact that they will have on our lives. That's led me to writing some incredible books, most recently, The Metaverse Handbook. And I'm always thinking about, you know, how can we add diverse perspectives in the conversations and the technologies that we're building? We need to start by asking, what is diversity? And, uh, Christy, you want to take that one first? It seems like in a way it's kind of an obvious question, but maybe not so easy to figure out. Many of us have seen the image of an iceberg and what we see of a person is only 10% and really below the waterline, there's another 90%. And diversity exists in the visible and invisible aspects of individuals. So it might be that you see race and ethnicity, perhaps. Maybe you see gender or age. That's above the waterline. But underneath, there's invisible aspects of diversity. It could be aspects of someone's socioeconomic class, um, their degree or area of study. It could do with how they work and working styles. It could do with um, mental health and disability, whether it be physical or, or mental. There's so many different aspects that go into diversity, whether it be you know religion or veteran status or sexuality or how someone identifies from a gender perspective as well. So there's, there's many, many different aspects. Um, I could go on to the laundry list and I'm sure Q can add many more, but I like to think about it in that way, the invisible and visible aspects in the iceberg. I will add some color. When I think about diversity and when I'm working with teams, the way I like to, to visualize it is I say, hey, we've all been in a store and we all know the candy aisle within a store. And there's usually a few sections of candy. You have your nice assortments of high priced chocolates that you know probably taste good, but way, way too overpriced. Then you have like your gummy bears and your gummy worms and the gummy candy. And then you have that section on the end where it's an assortment and it's a variety pack and it, it includes a little bit of chocolate, a little bit of gummies, a little bit of uh, things and candies you've never probably even heard of, the things that don't sell that they put in there. And I like to think of diversity as much more akin to the diverse assortment of candies than not. Because when you buy that bag, you're getting some Skittles, you're getting a, a, a Hershey's, you're getting M&M's, you're getting, you know, some... Mexican candy you probably have never seen or heard of before, but you get a chance to to try the varied 
uh, assortment of, of different uh, textures and, 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 and your taste buds get to like get enlightened. And that applies not just to candy, but also to your team, your environment. When you work in an environment that has the same perspectives, guess what? You're going to hit the, you're going to hit it. You're going to hit the mark, but you all see the same thing. So when yeah. something happens that blindsides you, there was never any lighthouse that said, Hey, what if we thought of this? There was never any aha moments that said, Hey, what if, what if we just went the opposite direction? Maybe we can, you know, solve all of our problems by thinking about it from where we've been, not where we're, we want to go. And it, it's hard to pre- put in practice, even myself. Like, you know, when I go to uh, the apps on my phone every day, there's a, there's an app called Apple music. When I open it up, I listen to the same five artists. Right. I can't even be diverse with my own music assortment or my own music choices. So it's like, how can I be then diverse in my own uh, thinking and, 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 and executive abilities? And so it's something that you have to actively put in the forefront. You have to actively seek. And I like the iceberg analogy, because uh, whenever you think about creatures of water, like on, on top, they look like they're just chilling, but underneath there's a lot going on and diversity. You have to ask yourself, where is the the movement happening? Is it non-existent? Are you just going to sit there and sink or are you actually going to stay afloat by putting in the work and, and, and being a part of the change? As I have spoken with so many business leaders on CXO Talk, the really good ones have emphasized to me the importance of having diverse teams, of having multiple perspectives, of not getting caught in groupthink and bringing in fresh ideas. Because if you think about innovation, fundamentally innovation is doing things new. And if you're going to do something new, that means you need fresh thinking. I think that's so critical that it's just not a good thing to do. Um, if in terms of prioritizing diversity, it also like there's so many fascinating studies around um, just impact the impact of groupthink around the risk profile of organizations and also the impact on um, innovation, as you shared. So there's so many different aspects on why this is critical to prioritize from a business perspective. Why is this topic of diversity just so? hard. It's it's emotionally charged and it's difficult. What makes it so difficult? You, I'll let you take that one first. I have, again, lots of thoughts. Go, go I mean, go for it. I, I, you're, <laughs> you wrote the book, so I'm here. You know, I have, I've got it. I got two copies. I got the, the Kindle copy and the audio book and I have the physical, but I no, love- I, I I love that you came with props, Q. Like that is like you're showing me up today. <laughs> I mean, this is. I mean, you wrote the book on it, you know. Like, right, well, then I'm going to hold it up too again, and you get yeah. to see the, uh, you know, the green the, screen, the green screen version of it. There you go. Okay, so Christy, go ahead. Tell us why is it? Why is this so hard? It is so hard to talk about, and whenever I'm working with executives on this topic, I really share that discomfort is part of the process of building a dynamic, vibrant, diverse, and inclusive organization. If you are not feeling some discomfort, you are not doing it right. And discomfort by nature is hard. We don't like to sit with awareness of our own privilege or our own backgrounds or how we have our own affinity biases. We're all biased, and recognizing that is hard. The other thing I will share is something I always talk about with my clients, which is asking them a really critical question. 
And that is, do your outcomes match your intentions? And that is a hard question to ask. But the the premise is that the majority of executives that I work with, they deeply care about this. They, They have great intentions, but their organizational profile does not reflect those intentions. And so what I always say is, how do you make your outcomes match your intentions? How do we close that gap? Because we know in any other area of business, um, you measure what matters. So you would never ask your CFO not to report on the bottom line. Not to You'd never ask your marketing person not to look at the penetration of, and the impact of their marketing and markets and well how that's led to business. You always have metrics that matter. And diversity is no different. But being real, measuring those things and being honest that our outcomes don't match our intentions, that is difficult, as well as the discomfort around our own biases. This question reminds me of a, of a moment that I had. It was a moment of realization that I had about a year ago. We were filming my CNBC show um, called No Retreat, and we were bringing companies out to this farm in Vermont. And oftentimes the CEO would bring you know their, their group. Um, so they're like... Whoever reports to the, the CEO and they felt like they were instrumental in making change happen at their company, they brought this group. And what shocked me, because uh, we we filmed several episodes, but what shocked me, shocked me was we saw a little bit of the sameness. We saw the CEO would bring like their two top tier reports and like those top tier reports would have, you know, so, uh, an assortment of people that reported into them. And then like none of the people that actually did any of the work that would create the change in the organization actually started showing up on the farm. So what we did is by like the fourth episode, we actually started to do our own recon and we would find like who is like the actual uh, lieutenant that is getting things done and we would bring them. And then the changes that would manifest or be seen is like within the own organization, you would see that there was like elite societies and that's that's going to happen in, in any org. I mean, we're 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 creatures of habit. But when we started to break that is we would have them go through challenges that were very, very uncomfortable. Like one, like one of the, the challenges is we took people to this cold pond and we would make sure uh, you, you got in that cold pond and it's like 30 degrees outside and you're getting into a body of water. That's like 20 degrees. And, and at that point, that's when we started to see diversity really, really, really uh, be leveraged because it was like, Hey, Anyone that's got an idea that will get us out of this water as quickly as possible, we're going to leverage that and we're going to execute against that. And to Christy's point about alignment of expectations and outputs and, and outcomes, I mean, there was no better way to, to 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 actually visualize that and see it. And so part of me was like, huh, like I'm going to take this back to some of the teams that I have. And you're not always going to be able to take your 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 executive team to a uh, a farm in Vermont and put people in a cold pond. But what you can do is you can re- re- replicate some of those those uh, those processes internally by just saying, hey, you know, let's do something different and let's bring the, the people that would we already know who's always going to get called when a problem or a crisis uh, is, is needs to be solved or mitigated in a company. Let's bring a few people that sh- that wouldn't get called particularly. Let's hear what they have to say and let's consider that input. And if you start doing that, you'll start to see that, hmm. Maybe we should uh, try to like get more perspectives of people that aren't men uh, in the in the room. Maybe we should try to like uh, you know see what what talent we have already on our team because that's when you start to really see what you can do when you don't have 
uh, the people that you would always lean on. And that was a long-winded uh, way of getting no, to that question. But it was that's... so good. <laughs> yeah, and cute. It actually just made me think of one thing that I always encourage people to do around diversity. And, and you just, your example just brought that to light, which is instead of walking into a room and looking at who's around the table, the decision-making table or the putting out fires table, as you said, whatever that may be, walk into the room and ask yourself who's not sitting at the table who should be invited. And that simple mental switch can really help us build more diverse teams and also have better crisis response, as you you pointed out. You have to level set that, though, because if you put someone that has never been at the table at the table, they're going to be silent because the same way if you're in a relationship and you don't create a safe space, uh, what's going to happen is like, you're never going to hear, like, you're going to get these passive aggressive uh, motions from your, from your partner. The same thing is true. It like, if I've never been at the table and you invite me to the table, I'm going to feel weird. I might not feel empowered. And guess what? I might not say what I, what I have to say. And you might miss the the moment. And then you'll say, well, that person doesn't need to be here. They didn't say anything when they were here. Yeah. Changing that situation matters a ton. You're absolutely right. And studies show that you need you can't have tokenism and you need a critical mass of people from a certain group or identity to actually feel comfortable speaking up. So one suggestion is there's processes that people at the table can adopt to elevate the voices of others. And one was a it's a process that was actually done in Obama's White House, which is amplification. And they found that the women were sitting at the table, their ideas weren't being heard, they were hesitant to talk. Um, or their ideas were being taken and then repeated by someone that had a different kind of political stance in the room, and then therefore they were being heard. So what they did was they they decided that they would amplify each other's voices. So if your point of view wasn't heard, I'd say, Q, I'd like to go back to what you were saying, or building upon what Q said, and really creating a safe space where their voices are amplified through others. So that's one of many tactics you can use, which is good. Fostering that sense of awareness, Christy, that you were just describing when there's not this perceived feeling of desperation. If you're desperate, you know, you're going to try anything. But if you're not so desperate, then you're talking about disrupting yourself. And that's not so easy. I agree. And when I come in and work with clients, there's so many different triggers. Sometimes it's, it's, there's not a case of desperation, but this is something that is personally and professionally really important to a leader or executive. Others are, they're like, this is not urgent now, but I know that the workforce is over 50% women and increasingly diversifying from a race and ethnicity perspective. And if we don't capture that talent, we're losing out on critical perspectives. Sometimes it's something like, well, we're trying to reach diverse markets. How can we create products and services for those markets without the insights of individuals on our teams that represent them? So even though those may not seem like crisis moments, those are real and pressing business issues. Now, to, to build on that, Christy, uh, in your book, Begin Boldly, I haven't finished it, but there are some <laughs> points that I do want to talk about. You know, there's only so much time in a day. Uh, <laughs> you talk about aspiration to action. and. Yeah moments that everyone can do to try to shift the paradigm and see these diverse perspectives. What was the impetus of even, you know, considering that? Cause you're writing this book and it's like, you know, you, the target audience is women, but it's very rare. You'll see someone say like, Hey, I know your boss isn't listening to you. Like, but here's some things you could do to like change that. Like, I thought that that was an interesting juxtaposition because like oftentimes, you know, if I'm if I'm not being heard or acknowledged, you know, I'm my 
leaning in is not like, the first thing I'm going to go into. If anything, I'm going to try one or two, maybe a third time, and then I'm out. Like I'm going to be like, all right, it's 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 not worth worth seeking more uh, more input. So what 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 like elaborate on the aspiration to action framework because I thought that that was really good. A couple things. One is I, I should mention, I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, like I work with organizations, but I also work with individuals through coaching and the book is targeted towards individuals. Um, and it's not to say, oh, like women need to be equipped to, or ind- employees to really push the boundaries, like you said, but like the org- we're absolving the organization and leaders of any responsibility. You're right. Like organizational culture change needs to happen so that we do hear these voices. But in parallel, I'm like, I want to equip people to navigate the state of play as it is. Like you have to hit individual and organizational at once. The aspiration to action. So this is what you were getting at, Q. And I love this idea because, again, it's most people I've met throughout my career. Like if I say in front of a room, I just did it the other day of 500 people. And I say, who desires to be bolder and braver in their career? Everyone stands up, right? So there, there's there's deep aspiration for building brilliant careers through boldness, but that isn't followed by action all the time. And so when I talk about the book, I, I talk about what are the barriers that prevent us translating those aspirations into action and how do we address them? And I think oftentimes we get in something I call analysis paralysis. We overthink about the approach and how to take action. And that actually delays it. And I just encourage people to err on the side of action. And Herminia Abar, she's at, um, I think, London Business School now. She was at um, INSEAD. And she wrote these great books around the fact that we're usually told to analyze than act. But we do a lot better in our lives if we acted, acted more and then analyzed. And so it's really on this kind of process of like, let's err on the side of action, experiment, and then kind of scale it over time. So, yeah. I love that. And and, and just to carry on, because if you read further in the book, you then go into the put it into practice section and you have yes. this, this uh, agile experimentation chart that, you know, if you've been to business school, you've seen it, but you, you flipped it. You made it all about intent and, and, and you made it basically a mental, you basically built a mental model for taking risk and yep. it did so in a way where like, you can analyze all of the risk that you're about to take. And I've never seen that. What was the like impetus of creating this model? And like, well, how have you seen it used and, and since the book's been out? The impetus is that most of us want to take risks, but risk has been labeled as something when we think about the word as something that we want to minimize or mitigate or manage. But really, we need to be seeking risk. But it's hard to do that with all of the mental negative connotations we have around it. And I'm not saying go out, be bold, take any risk. No, that would be foolish. What I'm saying is here's a toolkit and techniques and a model to help you be an intelligent risk taker. It's like, I'm not telling you, and I write this at the beginning of the book to like, you've never been paragliding and put on a paraglide and jump off of a mountain. But I am saying here are the tools, techniques, a guide, a toolkit that you can do so you can be an intelligent risk taker. So that's some of the, some of the background around that. Krista, you talk about uh, courage. Yeah. Why do we even need to talk about courage in this case, <laughs> right? You're working in a company and you're in meetings and you, what do we talk, what, where, courage, why? As you know, there's three mindsets that I think are really critical to being a successful risk taker. And one is the curious mindset. The second is the courageous. And then there's the agile mindset. And what I talk about in the courageous section is that 
to date, I think that there has been too much focus on confidence and not enough on courage. And what I, if I had waited to feel confident to, you know, write this book, to get on a live TV show, to talk in front of thousands, I would never get anything done. And if I waited to feel confident before any bold move in my career, it would have delayed progress. And 100% of my clients, that's the truth. There is no such thing as being fully confident before you make a really big, bold move or a risk. Because by nature of risk-taking, you know that you could have positive or negative outcomes. So the key is, instead of saying, do I feel confident before I make this bold move? I say you can be courageous in the absence of confidence. Confidence is not a prerequisite for success. And Michael, to your question, like why I focused on this, it's during my research, I traveled around the world and I interviewed a lot of successful senior um, women leaders. And a lot of them, were. I read their bios and I was just starstruck, right? I was like, how can I even interview these phenomenal human beings? But I walked in the room and a lot of them didn't show up courageously. They showed up with self-doubt. They showed up asking, why are you interviewing me? You can edit out my comments. This is what I still grapple with. I still don't know how to do this. And I thought, gosh, the most successful people don't show up uh, confidently all the time. So confidence is not a prerequisite for success, but courage is. What they did tell me was they showed up in the face of fear, did something that scared them every single day, and were courageous even when they lacked self-esteem, even when they felt self-doubt. And that was really where the focus came from. Q, you've been on television. You've done a lot of different things. Talk about your thoughts on this aspect, this distinction between being courageous and showing up to do something even if you're not 100% confident? I create the expectations, right? There's a there's a principle that I have been living by here recently. It's called like the everyday's philosophy. What are the four or five things I'm going to do every day, regardless of what's happening, regardless of how I feel, regardless of what's going on in my life? And it's through that I, I find the courage, the, the stamina, the energy to keep going. And we all practice something every day. I mean, if you own a smartphone, you check your notifications every day. Uh, you work in a corporate organization, you're probably glancing at your email every day. Hopefully you brush your teeth every day. Um, you know, and, and for me, I'm always thinking about, you know, what's the future? So I have a, a journal that is online. I don't promote it that 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 often, but I, I do blog every day. Um, and and I ask myself, what's the future? And I share that online. And there's a small community there that reads it, but I don't do that for the publicity. I do that so that when I do enter spaces, I do have you know things that I can you know pull off, uh, pull from in recent memory. Or as a writer, I'm sure Christy, you can attest to this. The best way to keep content going as a writer is to not never stop writing. The breaks that I've taken between books have been probably the most arduous points of my writing career is because when you're under that deadline, when you're working with a publisher and they're saying, hey, this manuscript is due or we need this chapter now, you're you're in this flow. So it's not that hard for you to finish a chapter. But when as soon as you're done, if you stop writing and you try to pick, come back to it like a week or two weeks or even a month later, what happens is you're slow. You're like, oh man, what used to take you, you know, moments to put down a paragraph now takes you a whole day. And until you get that rhythm again, it, it just sucks. And so there's things that I do personally and professionally every day just to keep that cadence. And so when that big grandiose moment or opportunity shows up in my life, 
I, I, I might not be ready and I might not have all the courage because I've never done it before, but at least I've put in the work and the practice so that way I can show up as the best Q Harrison. What advice do you have, Christy, for women who feel that need to, to have more confidence or who don't have, who are concerned about their own feelings of confidence? What advice do you have to be courageous and to show up as in a way that will help them get noticed and stand out in the workplace? It's really important to have a toolkit and toolkits and techniques to take risks, whether it be raising your hand in a meeting when you don't usually offer a point of view, or whether it be presenting to a client or transferring companies or starting an entrepreneurial venture. I think that having a method to assess risks, and this is something like Hugh just mentioned earlier, like what is your framework for doing that? is really helpful because sometimes it's, we don't know how to approach risk-taking or being bold. And actually that's part of the reason that I wrote the book. And it was, I was talking with my editor when we were creating it and she was like, and this I actually included in the book. It's like, we take risks all the time, getting in our car is a risk, but we probably went to a driver's class. We probably have an emergency number. We probably know who to call if we have a flat. We probably have GPS on our phone. And risk-taking is no different in your career. You should have a support system. You should have a method. You should be trained in it. And so that's really the way that we need to approach things. So that's helpful. And then the other last point I'll make is, you know, don't go at it alone. No woman is an island. I personally think this whole concept of being self-made is absolutely false. Everyone has had someone contribute to their journey in some way, shape, or form. We're all part of an interconnected community. And if you're going to be bold, one of the most important things is to strategically build your support network. Arsalan Khan, who's a regular listener, and he he asks great questions. He talks about HR on coming from Twitter. What's the role of, of HR in all of this? I think HR is a critical, critical partner in d- building a diverse and inclusive organization. I also think, though, that there needs to be a partnership like with an executive sponsor that's very visible in some way, shape, or form, because this cannot, building a diverse organization, the entire onus cannot sit with HR. It has to sit with the business leaders and executives of the organization, and it has to be built into the business, into the very fabric of the business. And then I think where HR really comes in and the expertise of HR is that when you look at your people processes, when you look at your policies, how inclusive are they? So an example would be like, how are meetings scheduled? And are they scheduled at certain hours that only certain people who don't have caregiving responsibilities can make? How are you recruiting people? Are there names in universities on um, on the resumes? And is that causing any bias? Are there referral programs that will build a more homogeneous organization rather than a more diverse organization? So really looking at recruitment, well, outreach, you know, then recruitment and selection, um, also looking at how to prevent attrition and performance management and how to interrupt bias in those processes. That's where the HR lens and, and support is so critical. What about culture? I'm curious in, in both of your perspectives on the role of corporate culture in uh, either strengthening the institutional bias or uh, demonstrating institutional openness, the tone of the organization. I think it comes from the leadership. Like I, I agree with what Christy said. 
in the sense that your leadership is your greatest that's your that's the greatest internal marketer that you'll have right the leaders that you've chosen that have uh some chief or or mission critical stance in the organization that are that have visibility and are represented they contribute the, the most to your culture because they set the standards now the thing about it is sometimes uh they are challenged or tasked with creating outcomes that lead to great monetary gain or have like, you know, these short-term outlooks. And that's when you see the greatest cultural conflict, right? If I'm pressed and tasked with getting the most sales and hitting the the revenue targets or hitting the projections that have been instilled within um, the leadership team, then I might have to default to what I know because taking that risk for me might entail losing my job might entail uh, getting our department cut or, you know, cutbacks, or maybe I'm not going to be a leader anymore. And so then it becomes the question of, you know, short-term versus long-term. Oftentimes when it comes to the the, the short-term game or the short-term outlook, you know, your culture is going to stay the same. If you have this, this, this larger point of view or perspective and you look at that, then you have the, the opportunity to take the risk and say, well, what would this team look like if we had uh, more people of color or more women involved in, or, or maybe what if we said we're going to shift half of our staff where they can work remote, but we, we, we are going to actually expect higher expectations from our remote workers because they have more fluidity and flexibility on the, on the, on their time. And so we're commanding more of them, but it's on their own time. So if you want to work at 1 a.m. or 3 a.m., cool, but you have to realize it's going to take some time to get there. And, and that's what I think we've, we've been missing on the culture front. You could have an amazing culture code. You could have great policies and procedures, but culture also ultimately comes down the day-to-day actions of everyone taken in aggregate in that organization will make the culture as well. And so looking at those behaviors and what's repeated, what's accepted, that is so important. And if you look at the work in diversity, it's that's where the microaggressions and micro inequities happen or the biases come in in terms of who gets feedback, who doesn't, who's called to these high profile or high visibility opportunities and who's not, who's invited for whose successes are attributed to an individual versus a group. And so those kind of things are really where you need to look at, at do a deep dive around the habits and day to day behaviors, um, because that will ultimately make the fabric of a company. What's the solution? How do we get a handle on the problem in order to address it? Because there will obviously be significant resistance in many cases. Otherwise, the problem wouldn't exist in the first place. Diversity isn't unique in the sense, diversity initiatives and resistance to them is not particularly unique in the sense that any change and transformation effort is going to have resistance. Like I have never worked on a change project that that hasn't had those that want to maintain the status quo. And so I think the most important thing for organizations to think about is this is not necessarily unique. We've faced resistance to change in the past, and maybe we implemented a new IT system. Maybe we um, changed, maybe we had a merger and acquisition. Maybe we changed office location. Maybe we moved to a remote or hybrid workplace. All of those things have resistors. And so the key is then building engagement, stakeholder buy-in, but also realizing that resistance is a natural part of any change effort. What is unique or distinct about this type, about the resistance to 
building diverse teams. Is there anything unique about it, or is it just you know garden garden variety resistance to change? Some of it, I feel like, is general resistance to change, as I mentioned, and it's comparable to other transformation efforts. Some of it's unique, though, because diversity work can be deeply personal, and certain groups can feel threatened. And that threat is it, it is uh, happens on a personal and almost identity level. Like this is this effort is not about me, so therefore it's me versus them, and that can happen. Um, so that is something that I think is unique. I think it's really important to clearly state your why. There's this um, there's this quote that says, "People don't buy what you're selling; they buy why you're selling it." And I think that a mission-driven organization that clearly says why this is important to the executives and to leadership is absolutely critical. And also really sharing what this is and it isn't. And diversity and, and inclusion efforts have the opportunity to benefit an entire organization, irrespective of how you show up and what your visible or invisible aspects of diversity are or aren't. And I really think if you make this about inclusion and culture and performance and leveling up an organization, then it becomes less divisive. You're basically talking about removing the or lessening the personal aspect. There will be some level of people that will not be on board. Like I've had to have very difficult discussions with my clients and I'm like, you can do stakeholder engagement surveys and you can build buy-in and you can talk about this in an inclusive way that's really focused on building your best culture and attracting the best and brightest and most diverse teams. But ultimately, you will have some resistors, and that is natural, and that is okay. You can still make progress. So there is part of building buy-in and framing and communicating this in a really compelling way. But there's also ones where you just sometimes have to cut your losses and move forward and know that not all change efforts have everyone on board. When it comes to creating things, just as an African-American individual that's done a lot of the things that people would would say. I mean, from raising venture capital to starting organizations to uh, leading and, and having executive roles, like I've done it, I've done a lot. And I think there are some challenges because of the the identity thing that Christy just uh, mentioned, where she says that you almost feel like it's you against, you know, a certain population. Some of the things that I've done to reset that that thinking is I get that my perspective is uncommon. Right. I am the minority. And sometimes like what I might feel or what I might be facing um, is something that no one's ever heard. Right. Like it like it not by way of they don't care or they don't respect it. It's just that, you know, I have to convey that. And oftentimes when you're when you're frustrated, you're never going to be the best communicator or the best person to convey uh, said feeling. And so it's like being your true self. Um, pretty much all the time helps because then people get a chance to understand your perspective and they get to see your identity. And and, and quite frankly, you know, there's this book uh, by James Clear. It's called Atomic Habits. If you want to learn more I was going to bring that up earlier when you were mentioning <laughs> your habits every single day. I was like, you sound like, <laughs> I was like the habit stacking. <laughs> yeah, habit stacking, right? Well, I mean, in that he talks about also your identity is comprised of, of what you do. It's in like, you know, if you run every day, you are a runner and like, that's how you see yourself. Well, um, if you identify as Muslim or as a uh, black or as a woman and you that's that's who you are, there are certain things where you shouldn't conform 
um, within an organization. So people get to see you not only when you're happy, but also when something's not wrong because they can get a pulse. And oftentimes society and just uh, cor- corporate culture forces us to like conform and say, well, hey, it's always been done this way. Maybe I should hop on the train and just kind of play ball. But like the thing is, is when that doesn't work in your favor, you have no nothing to stand on, no background. And so it, it, it's tough because this is more an individual thing than it is an organization thing. But as an organization, what you have to do is trust and respect the people that you hire. And you can't neglect their opinions and thoughts um, just because they don't align with the times that you might see. Um, there's oftentimes a, a vision there that, you know, the diverse groups of people within your company might share and, and might not share. But it's your job as uh, an organization to bring all those minds together and, and lead. And so the, the true testament of a leader is knowing when uh, one group is being just underutilized and not heard and reaching out as a professional, like individually saying, hey, what's going on here and listening. Like what I've learned in my career is just like listening is the is the name of the game once you get past a certain uh, certain certain statue. Right. Because we all have, you know, it, once you get to a certain point in your career where you're at the CXO level, you probably all we all have very much the same skill sets and abilities. But our ability to listen and understand at real depth does uh, does play a a big, big, big part in creating diverse environments that work at scale. What advice do you each have for women or people of color working inside a company who are experiencing, they feel, bias or subtle discrimination, could be overt discrimination? What advice do you have? Uh, Krista, you want to start? It's really easy to get disheartened when you feel in an outgroup or a minority or that there's a perceived difference is is causing an impact to your career. And as hard as that is, um, I think it's important to recognize that the world reacts differently to women and underrepresented individuals, whether that be from a race or an ethnicity or a sexuality perspective, whatever it may be. That's the, that is the harsh truth. And the key is for us then to equip ourselves to navigate those situations. And there's so many different tools that, that you can use to um, negotiate more persuasively, to raise your voice in meetings, to, um, to be more persuasive, to build a greater network because you might not be... Um, Someone might not have an, a natural affinity for you, and therefore you may not, may fall out outside of their traditional networks. So the key is to like seek out mentors and coaches and tools and techniques that you can equip yourself with to really navigate that. We need to get in the driver's seat. Like I know that's broad, but the hard thing for me is I could give you a, a bunch of different tools and techniques, and it would be a laundry list at the end of this um, session. But I do think, though, the key is don't be in the passenger seat of your career. A senior executive woman said that to me. She's like, don't get taken for a ride. Um, another a mentor of mine, Betsy Myers, she was COO of Obama's campaign and head of women for Obama and then worked for women in the White House. She said to me, you know, put, take victim out and put power in. And so although organizations in the world may be slow to change, although we may seem in a disadvantaged position, the key is to get in that driver's seat, put power in, and take control of the wheel and get the tools and techniques in your toolkit. 
Um, and there's so many different ones that people can use around networking, persuasive communication, amplifying your voices and more. And some of them we've talked about today already. You're going to have to get really good at communicating your skills and expertise, right? You're, if you don't know how to communicate who you are and what you can do, you're already at a, a significant disadvantage. And regardless of your situation, um, you have to be okay asking for what you want. And sometimes what you want might be might not be available. And you have to understand that if that's what you feel like you're worth, you have to still stick forward. Stick, yeah, stick your hand out and, and like stay, stay rock steady on it. Because if the minute you waver on that, you're gonna just deter your own growth and and and, and personal um achievements in your own career. And there's books out here. I mean, there's uh, obviously Christie's book, uh, Begin Boldly. Uh, You're my new agent. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm just keeping it real. I'm keeping it real. Like, you know, there's also another book that I, I find uh, when people, when I have, because I, I mean, obviously people couldn't, Michael, you're not the only person to ask us these questions. I have, you know, people on my team that ask me these questions, people I've led before um, that seek advice. And there's another book by Rachel Rogers. It's called We Should All Be Millionaires. And that book was really good mm-hmm. because- it starts off with this black woman who's a lawyer and she talks about, you know, her struggles raising a family, being in North Carolina and and really seeing uh, how to get to seven figures and what the path was. And I thought it was a very easy read. And there's a lot of great advice, especially to women that are looking to start careers in corporate America. And there's tons of books and tons of resources. Learn your learning style and never yeah. stop uh, approaching the knowledge. Right. Because the minute you stop doing that. That's the day where you're going to be stagnant. And guess what? You're already living in the, the, the past that you're, you're trying to prevent, right? If you're, if you're thinking future, you're understanding that like it, the future is diverse. If you're not going to and seeing how other groups are getting it and breaking through their own glass ceilings, then you're going to be stuck in your own golden cage and it's going to be hard for you to progress. So that's my advice to, to people that, you know, look like myself or might be a woman uh, trying to start a career in the corporate landscape that is uh, pretty arduous right now. Christy, what advice do you have for business leaders who want to have diverse teams, but it's somehow not happening. They're not sure what to do. How do they, how do they create a diversity? Be honest with yourself. Do my outcomes match my intentions and then track those outcomes. And then irrespective of your intentions, then invest. I always say treat diversity like every other area of the business. You need to invest resources, money, time, get external experts or hire someone internally to do it. This is not a volunteer initiative. There needs to be measurement metrics, scorecards, resources, executive support. So just like your finance function, just like your innovation function, treat it just like those. And that's the best way to set yourself up for success. I want to do this. I think it's important. I can't find enough qualified women. Respond to that, please. I hear that almost every single day. I can't find enough black individuals and they're just not applying. I can't find enough women. I'm in an industry, tech, finance, whatever. It's just a pipeline issue. No, like, let's think about what you can do now. One, where is your outreach going? Like, is there bias in, in your catchment? How are you, how are you looking at what is the language you are using in your job ads? What are the prerequisites you're requiring? And are those a minute? Is there some selection bias in your pool? You know, how, what does your selection process look like? So start there on the things you can control and in parallel, start investing in building the pipeline earlier. Go into schools, go into universities. You can have a long-term benefit 
while also doing short-term quick wins and really being honest about the fact that there are people out there and your processes, if revised, can actually catch them. Women have only had about 50 years in the contemporary workplace as we know it. And in that 50 years, we've seen them become millionaires, billionaires, presidential candidates, leaders of, of, of world initiatives. And if you can't see the talent that's already ha- that's already happening and, and is manifesting in front of you, then it's like you have to ask yourself, are you are you fit for the job and the role? Because as a leader, your your job is to recognize the shining stars and they are there and they have had less time than men in, in other groups. Christy, final thoughts on this topic of building diverse teams. If you can summarize everything you know in a tweet-sized bite. My tweet-sized bite are do your outcomes match your intentions? And if not, it's time to invest strategically and close the gap. And Q Harrison, everything you know about this topic, if you would summarize in a tweet-sized bite for us, please. You are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So if you're trying to build a diverse group, look at the five people around you. If they're not diverse in age, gender, income, or even uh, ability, religion, you're probably not going to build a diverse group. So go start with the five people around you, make that a diverse group, and then try to make your teams and your organization more diverse. And with that, a huge thank you to Christy Hunter, R. Scott, and Q. Harrison Terry. Thank you both for being here with us today. Thank you, thank you so much. And a huge thank you to our audience. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our newsletter. Just hit the subscribe button at the top of our website and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You guys go should. buy the book. Go yeah. buy and, the book. And <laughs> buy the book. Buy the book. Thanks, buy both Q. of <laughs> buy both of their books. I was looking around for Q Harrison's book. I put it down. It's all good. This is Christie's show. This is Christie's show. Yeah. Here, I got it for you, Mike. There you go. Right there. All right. There there we go. Both of them. All right. Buy both of those books. They're both really good books. Thanks so much, everybody. I hope you have a great day. And uh, check out CXOTalk.com. We'll see you next time.